Hello and welcome to another episode of Real Atheology. Today we offer up an interview that Ben Watkins and I, Justin Schieber, recently conducted over Skype with philosopher Wes Morriston. Dr. Morriston earned his PhD in philosophy from Northwestern University in 1972 and was a professor of philosophy at University of Colorado, Boulder, from 1972 to 2014, when he retired as emeritus professor of philosophy. Professor Morriston specialized in philosophy of religion. In the interview, we discuss a variety of topics, including a supposed tension that exists between a belief in what is often assumed to be the value of free will on the one hand, and the belief in God's essential goodness on the other. We also discuss the moral argument, at least the form advocated by Christian philosopher William Lane Craig. We want to again thank Professor Morriston for the fantastic discussion, and without further delay, here is our interview with philosopher Wes Morriston. I'd actually like to begin by asking you about the origins of your interest in philosophy of religion, essentially, why philosophy of religion? Well, I suppose I think that there's no bigger or more important question than what it is to be a human being, what our place in the universe is, and religions try to answer that question, provide in ready-made answers, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, philosophers don't settle for ready-made answers. They like to <laughs> question and explore and raise critical questions and make trouble. So I guess I'd say that's why I gravitate toward philosophy of religion. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, uh, you are you you identify as a Christian theist, is that correct? Uh, not any longer. No, okay. It's kind of a long story. Um, uh, let's see. In the 1980s, um, I decided to make a semi-Pascalian wager by going to church and seeing what happened. And I, I worked at being an Episcopalian for, I don't know, 10, 15 years uh, before I gave it up. I'm just too skeptical, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think that's the bottom line. In your paper, What is So Good About Moral Freedom, you aim, uh, your aim seems to be to identify an apparent tension between two commonly held views among Christian philosophers. Uh, one view is about God's essential goodness, and the other is about moral freedom. Could you explain what some philosophers mean when they, when they claim that God is essentially morally good? Well, the thought is that God has a nature that consists of properties that he couldn't have failed to possess if we put it in terms of possible worlds, as people used to like to do, maybe still like to do, we could say that God has this nature, has these properties in every possible world. So, for example, God isn't just all-powerful, but God is all-powerful in every possible world. He couldn't have failed to be all-powerful. Uh, and the same goes for other attributes, omniscience, moral perfection. So God isn't just morally perfect, but he couldn't have failed to be morally perfect. He's morally perfect in every possible world. Um, so roughly that's what, what's meant by that. 
Uh, why do people think that? Well, I guess they think it adds to God's perfection to think that he's not just, doesn't just have these great making characteristics in the actual world, but he couldn't have failed to have them. He has them in all possible worlds. So if we think of this being as the greatest possible being, that's one of the one of the primary motivations for thinking of God as essentially good. Um, essentially just means it's part of his essence or nature, something that he couldn't have failed to have. One of the central claims of your paper is that God's being essentially good um, is somehow in tension with the intrinsic goodness of moral freedom. My question is, what do you mean by moral freedom here, and where do you see the, see the tension arising between these two views? Well, I'm, I'm looking at typical versions of the free will defense, um, which is an attempt to deal with the problem posed by the vast amount and variety and severity of moral evil in the world, and the question is, you know, why would a, an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing God permit all of this moral evil? Uh, and the answer that's often given is that we are morally free or significantly free. Um, significantly free is the term that Plantinga uses. Um, that means, in the context of the free will defense at least, that we're free to choose between good and evil. We could do either. Um, we're free to do what we know we ought to do, but we're also free to do what we know we ought not to do. Um, and this is supposed to be a very great good, um, such a great good indeed, uh, that God is justified in permitting an incredible amount of moral evil for the sake of it. The thought is that if God were to interfere and make us always do what's right, then then we wouldn't really be morally or significantly free, free to choose between good and evil. So the tension that you were asking about is that on the one hand, uh, free will defenders uh, are telling us that moral freedom is a very, very great good, so great that for the sake of it, God permits all the evil that we do with it. Um, and on the other hand, they're typically orthodox believers who think that God is not morally free, free to choose between good and evil, because he is essentially perfectly good. He couldn't have been other than perfectly good. So he's not free to choose between good and evil. We are. It's great that we are, supposedly. Uh, great that God isn't. Um, so... I hope we're starting to see attention. <laughs> Maybe I could spell it out this way. If it's such a great thing for God to be essentially good and therefore not morally free, why wouldn't it be a great thing for him to have made us like that as well? We'd just be more like God. How could that be bad? If, on the other hand, it's a really super great thing for us to be morally free, uh, why isn't it a defect in God that God is not morally free? So that's the that's the tension that I see. Bear in mind that I wrote this article more than 17 years ago. I'm trying to remember what I said, but that's that's roughly the tension. And I think in the article I spelled this out in terms of Swinburne's theodicy and uh, planting as uh, free will defense. 
turning to that, um, the Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne, um, you mentioned, puts a great deal of emphasis on the intrinsic goodness of moral freedom. That's how he goes about his theodicy. Um, but he additionally claims that God has a different kind of freedom. Um, could you explain the tension as you see it between moral freedom and what Swinburne calls perfect freedom? Well, they're just totally different. What Swinburne calls perfect freedom is freedom from any irrational desire or inclination uh, that might lead one to do what's wrong. Um, so God is perfectly free uh, because he has not the slightest desire or inclination to do what's wrong, uh, not the slightest desire or inclination to do what's less than the best, if there is a best. Uh, so if there is a best, you can count on God to do it. And there's a, a kind of argument that Swinburne offers for saying that a God who is perfectly free and who is also omniscient couldn't, couldn't do evil. So if God is perfectly free and omniscient, he couldn't ever have moral freedom, that is the freedom to choose between good and evil. And I think Swinburne acknowledges this. So that's what perfect freedom is according to Swinburne. Well, you can imagine what I'm gonna say about that. I'm gonna say, well, maybe we could have had perfect freedom and wouldn't that have been better? And wouldn't it have just made us more like God? And Swinburne, as far as I can tell, he doesn't address this issue explicitly anywhere that I know of, but his view does seem to be that God could have given us perfect freedom instead. Um, and maybe he has done that with other creatures, maybe with some angelic beings. Uh, and that's good too. But there are lots of good things, and it's really good for us to have deep responsibility for each other's welfare, uh, a responsibility of a kind that we couldn't have had without without the freedom to choose between good and evil. Um, so, yeah, moral freedom to choose between is very much a part of Swinburne's theodicy. Uh, and yet, right, he also simultaneously holds that God doesn't have this moral freedom. Instead, God is perfectly free. Swinburne doesn't seem to think that moral freedom is any better uh, than perfect freedom. He seems to think that these are both kind of on a par. And you use an interesting analogy in the paper to kind of talk about uh, the kind of bizarre consequence that, that follows from, that, from a view like that. Um, well, it does seem that God's taking a huge risk. Um, I, I think in the paper I had an analogy of <laughs> somebody <clears throat> who is choosing between a pair of equally tasty dishes, but one of them is poisoned. And he says, well, I'll have some of each. Um, <laughs> yeah, it would be a, a little bit like that with Spinburne saying, I mean, it's as if God is saying, well, I know that this moral freedom thing is very, very risky, um, but it's good too. Um, perfect freedom is just as good. So I'll create these beings with perfect freedom and these others, uh, I'll give moral freedom. I don't know what uh, the view is. Maybe it's that God likes variety. Yeah, maybe. Um, it's variety is good. Um, but I, given the risk and the consequences, 
it's hard to see why, if perfect freedom is every bit as good, um, why God wouldn't go with that and not go with moral freedom. Now, in the paper, you also discuss um, some of Plantinga's work with respect to this uh, this tension between uh, moral freedom and on, on the one hand and essential moral goodness on the other. Uh, and you, you suggest that the problem might actually be worse on Plantinga's view. Um, and this is a kind of a result of planning his view of um, of just goodness uh, when it comes to our ability to freely choose between moral goods and evils. Yeah, I don't I don't know what he says about this nowadays, but okay. but when he wrote when he wrote the nature of necessity, uh, the view was that that significant freedom, as he calls it, the freedom to choose between good and evil, um, is a necessary condition of moral responsibility. Mm -hmm. And moral responsibility is in turn a necessary condition for distinctively moral goodness. Um, So the way he developed the free will defense, it wasn't just that freedom has to bear all the weight, as if, you know, the intrinsic value of freedom, significant freedom by itself, uh, has to bear all the weight, it's that without significant freedom, there wouldn't be any moral responsibility and there wouldn't be any moral goodness in the world. So God, in virtue of his super knowledge of what would happen if, what various creatures would freely do if placed in various situations, knows that the overall balance of moral good and evil in the world that he's about to create will be good and indeed better than any alternative available to him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very roughly the way the free will defense, planting us uh, free will defense went back in the 1970s. And, and so he thinks that's the story on how God is justified. But notice that the story includes these claims. Significant freedom is required for moral responsibility, which in turn is required for moral goodness. But on the other hand, Plantinga doesn't think that God is significantly free. Um, Plantinga thinks that God is the greatest possible being. As the greatest possible being, he must have his great-making characteristics, all of them, including moral goodness, in every possible world in which he exists, which of course is all possible worlds. So there's no possible world in which God does anything wrong, so it looks as if Plantinga is stuck with the conclusion that God doesn't have significant freedom. But now, you know, it looks as if we have a logical inconsistency. On the one hand, significant freedom is logically required for moral goodness. God doesn't have morally significant freedom, but God is morally good. Right. Indeed. So, you know, if you, it looks as if we've got an inconsistency. Well, I certainly agree that uh, on its face, it's, it's not obvious that these claims are consistent with one another. Um, they, they certainly seem to be in tension to me. Um, but for theists who are sympathetic to this view, um, if they're to resist giving up one of these two beliefs— um, they need to offer a satisfactory account of moral freedom capable of relieving these tensions. What are some of the conditions that such a satisfactory account must give? Well, my, my thought 
in that paper, what what I focused on was was mainly the the looming logical contradiction in Plantinga's view, and I, I tried to think about how he he might or why, how a theist who likes this view might um, might try to get out of the contradiction. And my thought was that that they would need to show that moral responsibility requires significant freedom in the human case, in the case of a creature, but not in, the, in God's case, in the case of the creator. And my thought about how they might try to do that um, in a way that's still consistent with their libertarian view of freedom um, was that you could spell out the notion of responsibility in terms of kind of causal being the first cause of an action. So, so the difference between being responsible and not being responsible would be, if I'm responsible, I do it and nothing makes me do it. And that may be in certain cases compatible with not having alternative possibilities. Prying those two things apart um, in such a way that God could be morally responsible for what he does, but not have the alternative possibility of doing moral evil. That, I think, is the task. Mm-hmm. And then to show that that task can't be accomplished in just the same way um, for God's creatures. So, yeah, significant freedom is a requirement for for us, if we're to be morally responsible or morally good, but not so in the case of God. That, I think, is the task. And the key to it would be um, to, to work in terms of this notion of agent causation. Mm. Um, that, you know, I'm the source. I do it, and nothing makes me do it. So agent causation, and we would contrast that with event causation, and saying that agent causation is not reducible to event yeah. causation. Yeah, yeah. People, most philosophers don't think much of agent causation, but a lot of theists do. The idea is, if if you think that it's event causation all the way through, then you think when I do something, there's always some internal change in me that produces the action. So I decide to do it. Yeah. Well, why did I decide to do it? That's an event. Well, maybe I had these desires and beliefs, uh, and maybe they changed in certain ways. And maybe I had these beliefs because of something else, and that was so because of something else. And so you have a a straightforward causal chain, event causal chain, that runs through me and produces the action. People who like agent causation think that's not the correct view. They think that in certain cases, at least, we act freely in the sense that we start the causal chain. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the answer, the ultimate answer to the question, why did this happen, is I did it. Well, why did you do it? Well, because I chose to do it. Uh, we can be I, first causes in a sense. But then at some point in the causal chain, I undertook to do it, say. You're just going to say, well, what caused that? And the answer is just going to be me. It's it's I myself who did it. So the thought that there are agents who have powers and that among the causes 
that are in the universe are agents with these powers that they can exercise. Um, and there's no further, you know, in certain cases at least, there's no further chain of earlier causes such that the agent does it only because of those causes. Those would be the cases in which I am responsible for what I do. I am fully responsible. Now, the, the thing is, that with God, God is supposed to be the first cause of everything. So, so if God does something and it flows directly from him, then it might seem that he is responsible, even if, because his nature is so perfect and all, um, he couldn't do the wrong thing. But in our case, if God had made us with natures that require us always to do the right thing, then it, the causal chain would not stop with me. I wouldn't be responsible. It would stop instead with God. That's why significant freedom is required for responsibility, moral responsibility in the case of human beings, but not in the case of God. I'm sort of spelling this out, not because I believe it, but because I think that's the best option for theists to try. Some of the issues you kind of point out with with an account like that um, would be to discuss, you know, whether or not God is responsible for his nature being the way that it is. Um, if it is the case that God uh, is the way that he is uh, and so can only do the the morally perfect thing, um, he couldn't have, you know, he's not responsible for his nature. So it, there's a question of whether or not he's, he's responsible in the way that they're, that the theist would want to make him responsible. Uh, there, there are interesting questions there that, that kind of pop up on a view like that. The, there are some people, theistic activists, they're called, who think that God is ultimately responsible for everything, I guess, including his nature. Um, Thomas Morris certainly held that, and I discussed his view uh, briefly in, in that paper long ago. Um, here's, here's why I think this proposal uh, doesn't work. Um, it seems to me that God would just be stuck with his nature um, and, you know, wouldn't be the ultimate cause after all. Um, if God has to be this way, Right. If he just is this way by nature, then he'd just be stuck with it. Mm -hmm. um, to to make this to make this point, I tried to. I think I imagined two, you know, wholly imaginary sets of of creatures: the alphas and the betas. Um, the alphas, um, they both have natures that make it impossible for them to do wrong. They're both perfectly free in Swinburne's sense, mm -hmm. and perfectly free by nature. Um, that is, if, if they'd been different, they, they wouldn't have existed at all. If they'd been different in this respect, they wouldn't have existed at all. So this is very much a part of their, their intrinsic nature. This is what they are, right? right? Uh, to have this, this perfect freedom um, that secures them from ever being tempted to do what's wrong. Um, the difference between the alphas and, and the betas, I forget which way I had it around, but the difference is that, that one of them is 
caused by other things. I don't care. God, heredity, and environment, whatever. They're beings with these, this nature are caused to exist mm -hmm. uh, by something else. In the other case, they just pop into existence uncaused. Right? Now, I think it would be very strange to say that, oh, the ones who are caused by something other than themselves um, are not responsible for what they do in these morally problematic situations, whereas the others, right, the others are responsible, the ones that popped into existence with this nature. Yeah, that seems bizarre. Uh, well, it seems to me that, that, you know, the right thing to say is that neither would have the kind of responsibility we were talking about a moment ago. Exactly. Uh, this first cause agent responsibility. The difference would just be one of them just popped into existence by chance and couldn't help doing the right thing always, and the other uh, was caused to be this way. But either way, it would be their nature that is responsible, not they themselves. Uh, if, that, if that's the right thing to say, then I wanted to say, we should say the same of God. It would be God's perfect nature that's, that's right? Uh, he's stuck with that nature. He's not responsible, it's the nature. So a lot of theists are committed to God's nature being the unchanging, in a sense, because you've, you've responded also to William Lane Craig's um, divine command theory type view, where moral goodness itself is grounded in God's nature. And so if God's nature can fluctuate, if he can change it, that seem, you know, it seems like there's another euthyphro plot problem there. I've written on this as well. Yeah, you're, you're talking about the view that God is the ultimate standard of goodness. Yeah. That God or God's nature is the ultimate standard of goodness. Um, and at that point, I find myself wanting to ask, well, what do you mean uh, by God's moral nature when you say that it's the ultimate standard of goodness? Are you talking about things like love, being loving and being just and so on? Or are you talking about those properties? Um, if so, then I want to ask, are those properties good making just because God has them? Really? Or is God good because he has them? Modified euthyphro dilemma. It is a sort of son of euthyphro problem. My instinct is, of course, to say, well, if God exists and is good, he's good because he has these properties. That seems to me to be the common sense view. That, but that would require goodness to be something anterior to God. That would be def that would defeat the purpose of what the modified divine command theory is trying to achieve. Exactly, exactly. So if you say that God is good because he's loving, because he's just, well then, in your moral theory, what's doing all the work is those properties. And it really doesn't make any difference that God exists. I mean, it's great if there's a being who has these properties to the to the maximum possible degree. That's great, good news. But hey, we would could still be good in virtue of being just or loving, as just or loving as we can be, um, whether or not God exists.
suggesting that there's something about these properties that is itself good, itself worth pursuing for its own sake. Well, if you believe that goodness is objective uh, at all, then I'd be inclined to say that the properties themselves are just intrinsically good-making. That, that being loving is just an intrinsically good-making property. I know William Lane Craig retorts to that response, saying that this is an atheistic moral Platonism, and that it's utterly unintelligible. And I don't find a whole lot of force to that uh, retort. What are What are your thoughts on it? Um, well, he's he's a very strong anti-Platonist. Um, I think that's. Above all, because he thinks that if Platonism were true, then there would be something, these platonic entities, these properties, these truths that, that God would be subject to. Uh, but he thinks that God is the ultimate creator of everything other than God. Um, so we can't, have, we can't have any platonic properties. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not very persuaded uh, by him on this point. <laughs> I think the best solution for people who want to say that God is the ultimate standard of goodness is to go with some sort of doctrine of divine simplicity, according to which God is his nature, is identical to his nature, and that brings us back to this, this other issue. If God is the ultimate cause, um, is, is God, I ask, just stuck with his nature? Well, you might say, one, the theist might at this point might say one or the other of two things. One would be to say, well, God isn't just stuck with his nature because he is this nature. He, he just is it. Um, in a way, you know, whereas my alphas and betas you know, are stuck with their natures, but they're not identical to their natures. Um, God, on the other hand, is his nature. Um, I, I find this doctrine very hard to make sense of, but but it certainly it certainly is one of the things that theists have traditionally often held, um, and that would be one way out. The other way out would be to say, as uh, Justin was saying a minute ago, that God somehow gives himself his, his moral nature, that God is responsible for his nature. Um, and that would be the theistic activist way out. I, I don't think that works at all. I mean, there's the well-known bootstrapping problem. In virtue of what power does God make it the case that he is omniscient, essentially omniscient? Mustn't he be already uh, very powerful in order to do that? I mean, but then we've got another question. Where does that power come from? Does God give himself that power? Um, you know, with regard to the issue about the relationship between God and morality, I, I agree. I think that the best way to make sense of that is to say that God is is only good insofar as he um you know instantiates these these good properties that we all recognize as good you know being loving being charitable all these things um and that God would would merely be a perfect instantiation he would not be doing any grounding work though 
I think at best the theist might have a case for God serving as a God serving an epistemic role with regard to moral facts, uh, but even there, I'm I'm not not terribly convinced. Well, if you if you held that that moral facts, or at least the ultimate moral principles, whatever they are, um, are necessarily true. And you went with a quasi-Platonic view of all this. Uh, Then there would be this worry about how it is that we can know them, Mm -hmm. how that we can know these facts. And then there might be some work for God to do, uh, making sure that that you know we are capable of getting it right at least at least some of the time with respect to our views about what what the good is or what what we should or should not do, what sorts of things should or should not be done. Um, there would be some work for God to do, I guess. Um, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the work of being the ultimate standard of goodness. Well, what really motivates that uh, God being the ultimate standard is is that people like William Lane Craig put forward moral arguments that say, you know, if God does not exist, then there are no moral truths, basically that um, atheism implies moral nihilism, and that since there are these objective moral truths, therefore God exists. What do you think is one of the most important objections to that kind of view? Well, well, first of all, talk to some atheists and see whether they're actually moral nihilists. And <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot are. I mean, I, I, I certainly encounter a lot of um, atheists online who uh, are self-proclaimed moral nihilists or moral subjectivists, and you know they they think look, nothing matters. Not exactly the same thing. A moral subjectivist might, I mean. He might be a kind of moral relativist who thinks that they're just human beings and the standards that they've created, and that's what there is. But that's entirely compatible with moral seriousness, with taking some of these moral standards with maximal seriousness. Um, you know, you could be very committed uh, to them without thinking that they have some sort of platonic objective truth. but. But I know atheists who are Platonists. I mean, that's who think that morality is objective, and there is an objective fact of the matter about, you know, whether murder is wrong, and it has nothing to do with God. Um, I'm certainly one of those atheists who thinks that morality is objective, and I've certainly in the past sympathized with a Platonic view of it, um, and have since. Kind of backed off those platonic claims. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if Craig thinks that your view is logically inconsistent, then he needs to do a better job of explaining why. Ah. As far as I can see, Craig's moral argument is just this. Um, If there were no God, there would be no objective moral standards. There are objective moral standards. Therefore, there is a God. That's it. Yeah. Now, why is that better than this argument? Um, if there were no God, two plus two would not be four. Two plus two is four, therefore there is a God. Or you know, a chillion other similar arguments that we could pull out of our hats. Sure. 
So you're, you're implying that, that basic moral truths or basic moral standards are, are necessary truths, like similar to the way mathematical truths are necessary truths. They, they may, the, the, the ultimate moral principles may well be just like that. That's what Swinburne, by the way, thinks. Right, right. Um, it was kind of he believes God's logically contingent, right? Yeah, but but there's a gloss on that that I'm not okay. sure. Okay. <laughs> We're in murky waters. Not contingent the way we are. I think he's factually necessary or something. I'm not sure that I can give you a good good explanation of that right now. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, Craig needs to tell us what difference God makes. I mean, as far as I can see, it amounts to nothing but, you know, two claims. One is that there would be no duties if there were not a divine commander to give us duties. And the second is that there would be nothing good at all if God didn't exist because God is the, or his nature. There's a kind of slipperiness between those two. Is it God or is it God's nature? But right. sometimes think, he says one, sometimes the other. Is the yeah, what if God's analogous to a cosmic Hitler? Does that, does that make anti-Semitism well, good? I, I, that to me seems like an implausible implication. Well, he'd say that, that, that that's impossible, that God couldn't have been like that. On the other hand, I can't, I can't refrain from mentioning that here is a person who is a biblical inerrantist and believes that God did every single one of the awful things that's recorded anywhere in the, you know, some of the <laughs> parts of the Bible, including commanding the extermination of whole peoples, um, so I'm not sure what standing he has to say that God couldn't have been like Hitler. Yeah, if there are any self-evident truths, moral truths, uh, clearly one of them is that you shouldn't really be doing genocide. <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not one of the principles that would make things go best. <laughs> um. Kind of speaking more generally uh, within the field of, of philosophy of religion, what are some of the more uh, some of the most interesting and or promising areas of research within the theism atheism debate of the last few decades? What what kind of uh, kind of grabs your attention? Well, I think the first of all, I I think there's a lot of confusion about what it is to be a theist or an atheist. Um, Theism has been so narrowly defined in, in, I think, way too narrowly defined in contemporary philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, theism has been defined as the view <clears throat> that there is a perfect being, um, maybe a perfect being who has created the world. But, but I think that's way too narrow. Some people may believe in, in some kind of God, but not a God who satisfies that definition. Um, and if an atheist is someone who thinks that God does not exist, then we need to decide what God we're talking about. And my general feeling is that we need to broaden our view of what we're talking about here when we talk about God, whether there is or isn't a God. Um, but 
for me at least, one of the most promising um, lines of inquiry is to ask ourselves, what, so, so what if, for example, there were some sort of creator, ruler of the universe, um, what should we say about this being's moral character? Mm-hmm. Uh, That's Hume's question in the dialogues, right? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that... <laughs> I, I think Hume got an awful lot of things right. And I think we should approach that question in a some sort of somewhat Humean way. Um, we should look at the mixture of good and evil in the world and ask ourselves, well, which of various hypotheses about the moral character of the being in charge, assuming uh, for the sake of argument that there is one, which hypothesis is more likely? A hypothesis that this being is you know, morally perfect, a hypothesis that it has a sort of mixed uh, moral character, um, or hypothesis that perhaps the being is, is wholly indifferent to what we call good and evil. Um, and it, it's my view that, that the hypothesis that would come out ahead would not be that God is perfectly good, that he sides with the good. Um, I think, I think that's, the, yeah, I think that's probably right. I think, I mean, you look at some of Stephen Law's work uh, where he argues that, you know, evidentially it's, it's kind of difficult to identify any, any place that favors a God of, of moral perfection rather than a God that is wholly evil, for example. And then uh, some of Draper's work where he talks about the hypothesis of indifference. Yeah, the mixture of, of good and evil, it, it seems to be uh, not really favoring one side or the other. Um, well, I think that, that the, the way the world is is more likely given that hypothesis than given either of the unmixed, using Hume's terms, either of the unmixed hypotheses, either the purely evil or the purely good hypothesis, uh, or maybe the purely malevolent versus the purely benevolent hypothesis. Um, it seems to me that either the mixed or the indifference hypothesis comes out ahead of either of the unmixed ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is related to Stephen Law's evil God argument. I don't know if I want to say they're exactly on a par. Um, some people think that the idea of an evil God contains some a kind of inconsistency. Um, but I do think that there is something to this thought of looking at the world and asking ourselves, you know, would it be more likely given this hypothesis or given that hypothesis? I don't think that the perfect being hypothesis comes, the perfectly good hypothesis comes out ahead. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You were saying that you would no longer consider yourself a Christian theist anymore. And so uh, Justin and I, I know, have had our, we were Christian theists at one point in our lives. And, you know, through the pursuit of philosophy and just time and research, uh, our belief eroded away. I'd like to hear more about your story. I, I, I was certainly raised in a, in a Christian family. My father was a minister and um, <clears throat> a very conservative uh, Protestant denomination. Um, and I felt it 
to be very repressive of this this particular um, kind of religious upbringing, and threw it out the window when I was in my early twenties. Um, and it was only much later that, under the influence of a number of different things, I decided to try church again. Uh, not the kind of church that I'd been raised in, but instead of, of it was an Episcopal church that was liberal enough for me. Put it, put it, <laughs> um, I don't think I ever really believed the Orthodox doctrines, um, uh, but I thought I thought I would be able to make enough sense of them uh, to justify my being in the church. Um, and I loved the music, and I felt grounded in, you know, in a certain way when I went to church. Um, and then it just kind of broke up. Um, I just found that I didn't believe the things enough to justify my being there. Um, my innate skepticism just kicked in. So I wouldn't recall myself an atheist at all. I say that I'm kind of a skeptical seeker for the truth. Um, Would Schellenberg call a lifelong seeker? Something like that. Um, I, I, like, um, I like a lot of things about Christianity, uh, but I'm not a Christian, and I, can, I, I know that I can never be one. Um, I really don't believe that that there's a perfectly good, all-powerful being who's supervising the world. Um, the older I get, the less likely that seems to me. Uh, but that, the way I understand it, that doesn't make me an atheist. That just that's just one of the many possibilities. Sure. Because so so one of my aims in this project has been to so once we've set theism aside um what are the religious possibilities from there and so we can look at other like taoism and hinduism and buddhism and i even uh, include things like stoicism in there where we can have these different forms of life that are you know make sense of our concepts of reverence and awe um, where, where do you think once once we've set theism aside and we're we're thinking about the evolution of religion from here on out? Where do you think it's going to go? Well, I I have no predictions about <laughs> going to happen. Um, I I think all those possibilities you mentioned should be explored by philosophers, and I wish I had had done more of that. Um, closest I've come is taking a hard look at the book of Job, which I think reveals a conception of God which is very different from the mainstream Christian conception. The, the God that Job encounters is, how to put it, um, just too big to be captured by any of our moral categories. Um, I recently wrote something on that for a volume uh, that Draper and Schellenberg are editing uh, called Protest and Enlightenment in the Book of Job.
If you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real A Theology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real A Theology Patreon. The Real A Theology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all other music by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We want to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane, Jeremy Zierce, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Andrew Snyder, Jason McLoetta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Songe. Thank you for listening.